You're listening to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from Business in Vancouver and BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, how bricks and mortar retail is faring in downtown Vancouver, plus cyber trucks, cyber leaks, and a contract for a better worldwide web. BIV's tech panel joins the show later on. And coming up now, the CEO of the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association, Charles Gauthier. The Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association has just released a new report on retail in the city's downtown core. The report benchmarks bricks-and-mortar data to identify trends that have shaped downtown Vancouver retail districts over the past several years. Charles Gauthier, President and CEO of the DVBIA, joins me now to talk more about the report. Charles, good to have you back on the show, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, and uh, looking forward to this discussion. It was uh, really interesting in terms of the findings over the course of the last uh, seven years within our 90-block area. Yeah, there's so much good information. Before we dive into some of the highlights, I'm curious why this is something that the DVBIA wanted to examine further. Well, we've seen a lot of changes in uh, retail, not just within our 90-block area, but certainly worldwide with uh, online shopping and uh, a lot of disruptors out there. So it's really important for us to get a better grasp of what's happening within our own 90 block area to see if there's anything that's uh, trending. Uh, What do we need to focus our attention on? Uh, How can we actually assist those particular sectors in retail that are really doing well and and flourishing? And how can we actually uh, play a role in uh, making that occur a lot faster? So uh, this was the primary reason for it. And, uh, you know, we we felt that there was an absence uh, of information out there in terms of retail, even within our district and felt it was important for us to do some uh, initial research. And so I have an economic development team and uh, they were able to use the open source data from the city of Vancouver. Uh, we get business license information from the city and then using um Uh, tools like Yelp and Google uh, to kind of fine-tune that. So that's a little bit of the background why and and how we actually did in terms of methodology at a very high level. I'm not that that expert on that. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. I I think you raise an important point. There's been so much disruption in the retail industry, and I think that story has often been dominated, at least in the last several years, by headlines about insolvencies or store closures or efforts to restructure and on and on. But it looks like, looking at this report, that there's actually a story of growth when it comes to downtown retail. So tell me a little bit about some of the trends that this report highlights. Yeah, and that caught me by surprise because uh, if you listen to uh, media reports and Joel stories and just, uh, you know, my personal walkabouts in other parts of the city of Vancouver as well as uh, downtown, you know, it, it kind of you kind of start to think about, well, is is retail on its way out in terms of brick and mortar? Uh, But uh, lo and behold, uh, you know, fact-based approach uh, that we've done illustrates that uh, we've had uh, an average annual growth of 4.4% overall in our retail sector in our 90 block area for brick and mortar uh, retailers, uh, excluding food services, uh, liquor establishments, and cannabis dispensaries. And overall, a net gain of uh, 212 uh, brick-and-mortar uh, retailers. So that in itself was kind of like, 
yes, that's you know this is good news. <laughs> that actually correlates with uh, you know the success of our downtown with employment growth, new job space, and with new residents moving into the downtown area. So within that net growth of 212 locations since 2012, what's changed in terms of the makeup of retail in the downtown core? Well, certainly the the beauty category has sort of taken off. Uh, It's had an annual average growth of uh, 7.5%. So it's the leader of the group in terms of that annual average growth uh, when compared to things like jewelry and fitness centers and clothing and shoes. Uh, and, and so that tells us something. Uh, it, it kind of mirrors what we've been seeing and reading about in terms of the, 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 the emergence and uh, the phenomenal growth that we've seen in luxury retail uh, within uh, our 90 block area. If you think back when uh, Pacific Center was uh, doing its renovations of the former Sears building, uh, it made a strategic decision to also add a number of luxury retails in the expansion of its underground mall. Uh, and then Nordstrom arrived on the scene as well. And so uh, that that was a key signal that, uh, you know, luxury retail uh, was something that uh, building owners uh, wanted to, to have within their portfolio. And then certainly Alberni Street is, is, a, is a great story about how uh, it transformed as a result of luxury retail. So the beauty category kind of mirrors that to some extent. You know, people want to take care of themselves. They want to look good. Uh, and, and hence, as a result of that, there's a, a demand for uh, that beauty category, which includes salons and barbershops and, and uh, body products. Um, so uh, that, that uh, for us was uh, kind of a, an interesting sidebar. We knew about the luxury retail, but we didn't think that that particular sector had grown so much within uh, the period of the study. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I saw too that men's barbershops specifically more than doubled over the period of time you looked at. Yeah, I mean, the the actual number is, you know, gone from six to 13. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not a huge number, but it's a significant number to pay attention to because it's also saying that men want to take care of themselves too. <laughs> and, and they want to look good. Um, uh, so I and and what we found too in in that particular category is that there's a lot of loyalty. Uh, you know, if you've got a if you've got a barber or a hairdresser, uh, you know, and they're really good, you've got them literally, you know, for your life. That's who you want to go to. They know how to they know how to make you look good. Uh, so uh, again, that was uh, this was a surprise for us. The beauty category and and the men's barbershops were definitely a surprise. And then, you know, from that, the, the jewelry category, again, that fits into luxury retail, uh, that had a growth of 6.3%, uh, an annual um, average growth. And then uh, fitness centers, 5.9%. And then the one that kind of lagged behind uh, was clothing and shoes uh, with an annual average growth rate of uh, 2.1%. Kind of not a big surprise because they've been the ones that have been somewhat disrupted by, um, you know, by online shopping. But having said that, they haven't lost you know ground. They're still in in the top three. Mm-hmm. Uh, so beauty, clothing, shoes, and jewelry are our top three retail categories uh, within our ninety block area. What are we seeing less and less of over this period? Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good question. Um, uh, you know, it, it's kind of hard to to. Um, you know, pegged out. I mean, what we've seen is, um, I'll answer your question a little bit differently. You know, what we've seen is the loss of uh, longtime retailers. Mm. Uh, so 
you know, Engledews is in that category. So they're in that shoe category and, and they cited uh, online retail uh, in part uh, for, their, for their demise. Uh, and then uh, Edward Chapman's uh, was a, a kind of another uh, casualty as well. And, uh, and again, that's, uh, you know, just again, part of what uh, the changing, I think the changing demographics that we're seeing and, you know, millennials and where they're shopping, you know, they're going to fast fashion uh, H&M, just to name one in particular. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the other thing, uh, certainly uh, there were some casualties as a result of, um, of Apple uh, coming on the scene in 2008, 2009. Uh, so, you know, you see the loss of uh, places like the Sony Style Store that was in the former Tom Lee Music Building at 929 Granville Street. And then there used to be an HP uh, printer store uh, <laughs> on Alberni Street. So it was a casualty uh, as a result of, um, you know, disruption and in, in Apple in particular. Uh, Sears, you know, big department store, um, you know, during that time frame uh, and, and, and then HMV, right? Um, mm-hmm. So... These are some notable uh, businesses that we've lost over the study period. And I would also say, I would also say Alberni Street and the transformation of that area for luxury retail, you know, that resulted in the loss of um, uh, a number of uh, convenience and lore and uh, retail. There was a dollar store in the Carlisle, Carlisle building on the Thurlow side. Well, that was got, that disappeared as a result of the redevelopment of the Carlisle building for luxury retail. And then we also saw the loss of the 7-Eleven that was at that same corner. So I think what we're seeing is um, uh, in our 90 block area, you know, where rents are most expensive, you know, landlords are going to try to get tenants in there uh, to, uh, in essence, it's pretty simple, pay those rents with the rents that they're they're demanding. And they're uh, being strategic in terms of the types of tenants they want on a particular street. They're acting like Alberni Street is acting in part uh, very similar to, you know, what a a Pacific Centre Mall is doing in terms of getting the right mix of tenants uh, in their portfolio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, that cost piece is something I wanted to ask you about, because as we've seen the rise of online shopping and e-commerce, we've also seen for all businesses in downtown Vancouver, increasing property taxes, lease rates, more competition for space, including from, say, American retailers or tech companies looking for commercial zones. Have you been able to see what kind of impact affordability issues have had on the retail landscape? Has that disrupted, say, the mix of retail businesses that we have in the downtown core? It, it definitely has. And I was asked a similar ca- question by one of your colleagues in, in the media. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't mean that there isn't a, a space for those uh, tenants that can't afford those rents. And because our price points are much lower than, you know, that one than what we have within our own district. Uh, because again, we're we're representing the 90 blocks that we have, and even within our 90 blocks, there's some opportunities. For example, on Granville Street, uh, south of Robson to the bridge, you know, the rents are not as expensive as they are within the CBD area, and certainly in the West End, uh, there's opportunities there. Um, Robson between um, uh, How to uh, BC Place, uh, sorry, not How, but between Granville Street and BC Place the rents are not as high as they would be within the CBD area. Uh, and it's important for us, and, and we, we don't necessarily want to be just luxury and high-end. Uh, we do certainly want to have a good mix within the downtown peninsula. Uh, however, I don't think you know, we'll see that um, 
necessarily be the case within uh, our own uh, catchment area or within the CBD itself, because I think, uh, as you cited, property taxes have gone up, rents are going up, and uh, we have limited space. Uh, office space is at a premium, and, and so is retail space. Mm-hmm. Are we seeing retail footprints get smaller? I know there are some great examples that dispute that, like Nordstrom or Holt Renfrew, large locations in the downtown core. But for smaller retailers, are we seeing them try and fit into smaller spaces or are we seeing large retail footprints being broken up into maybe multiple stores? That's an excellent question. And I think that that has occurred and will continue to occur. We've seen some, uh, I call it right sizing. Uh, a good example uh, would be uh, Tom Lee Music. Uh, a couple of years ago, made the move from the 900 block of Granville Street to uh, Vancouver Centre uh, itself, um, and so they they reduced the size of their footprint uh, sizably. Uh, and and uh, and again, I suspect uh, that um, to some extent they were uh, being hit by uh, online shopping, and and certainly. Um, uh, you know, people are able to download print music and a variety of other things rather than buying it. A lot of it is available for free. Mm-hmm. So um, we've seen that, um, you know, we've seen um, uh, other uh, tenants, uh, you know, make those kinds of decisions as well. Um, you know, um, it, I would just think it's going to be an ongoing trend. I mean, they're just going to find a way to uh, continue to have a presence within the downtown area because, again, we have... Uh, 150,000 plus employees uh, within the downtown area. And then we have uh, close to 100,000 residents. And then the number of tourists that come here, this is a, a prime market for them to, to, be, to be in, mm-hmm. uh, but they are going to right size accordingly. Um, so I, I would just see that as an ongoing trend. Now that you have this research, Charles, is it clear what recommendations the BIA might make on behalf of retailers or businesses in the core? Well, what we didn't do in this analysis is that we didn't ask questions about property tax and rents and, uh, you know, what are some of the challenges. We know what some of them are, and the city is actually uh, doing a retail study, which does not include our 90-block area, but they've included other um, shopping streets within the city of Vancouver. And I don't know what the timing of that report is, but we have seen some preliminary results and certainly uh, items like property taxation and rents and uh, uh, kind of the experience, uh, the the pedestrian experience uh, that consumers currently uh, are experiencing. And and that's things like uh, street disorder issues like homelessness and panhandling and uh, and property crime to some extent. Mm -hmm. Uh, So our report didn't delve into that particular um, aspect of, you know, what do we need to do to advocate for businesses to be successful? Well, what this will do for us in, in this report is that it does provide us with um, a direction in terms of where we need to focus. So if we know that the average annual growth rate, and we do know that for clothing and shoes has been kind of sluggish, um, you know, do we play a role in uh, continue to push on that and trying to encourage uh, those kinds of businesses to locate downtown? Or do we kind of say, uh, let's put more focus on uh, the beauty category because there's low barriers to entry? Um, or do we put more emphasis on, on the jewelry component or the one that we're starting to see some, you know, some action on as uh, our fitness centers and the growth of those? Uh, so what's that saying to us? Is that uh, put more emphasis on, on services rather than products? Um, 
And it doesn't mean that, you know, we don't see a department store like the Bay continue or we don't see the offerings that are in Pacific Center Mall because that's necessary. Uh, but where are there some opportunities for um, for us to take advantage of, uh, in particular, um, you know, for Granville Street, uh, where there are some vacancies? Uh, we heard yesterday from, um, from uh, the managing partner at Deloitte, I was part of a panel, that um, you know they're they're now in the uh, former Tom Lee Music Building in the 900 block of Gravel Street, and they love the neighborhood, uh, but they certainly gave us a wish list of the types of businesses that they would like there, and that corresponds in part to to this analysis and what what we've learned. Mm, great. And finally, Charles, I understand that next year you'll also be looking to publish a report on food and drink establishments and mapping out that data and highlighting trends tied to that subsector when it comes to retail. Uh, we'll have to have you back on the show to talk about that. But generally speaking, what are some overarching trends you expect might show up in the data? Well, I let, and I guess we'll have a record of this now. So I'm I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do some projections. Yeah, and we can uh, verify that. But <laughs> I think I think what we'll see is uh, kind of the combination of uh, of uh, food, liquor, and entertainment. And uh, I would cite the Colony Bar on Granville Street uh, to having done that mix. Uh, and they're not the first to do it, but certainly it's it's one that pops into my head, and I think we're going to see more of that. So um, I've always said that uh, the day of the nightclub or the night of the nightclub is coming quickly to a close. Like, like businesses can't operate uh, and pay taxes and rent uh, for only being opening open for two uh, nights of the week, uh, Friday and Saturday nights. And I think what we'll see is uh, more of a transformation of the nightclub sector on Granville Street because the rents and property taxes uh, are expensive and they can't afford to operate only on two nights. So I think we'll start to see more of that, more of those changes. Um, and I and so I would say that's kind of ex- experience, uh, experience type uh, retail, but more in a uh, food and beverage uh, sector. So if you go to the Colony Bar, you'll see what I mean. They've got arcade games and you can play bocce ball and mm-hmm. you can shoot hoops. Uh, so it's about providing an experience uh, while you're going out uh, to have drinks uh, with friends and colleagues and having dinner with friends. Interesting. So well, I think that's going to be the big, big change. Yeah. Um, and I think also um, the other one I'll, I'll go out on a limb on and I'll say that <laughs> uh, we've seen a growth of uh, of independent uh, restaurants. Um, so I, I don't think that chain restaurants uh, are going to go away anytime soon. I think they fill that void. It's affordable. Uh, it's quick, uh, but I think we'll also see a growth in kind of healthy food options um, in our 90 block area. So uh, restaurants uh, like uh, Tractor and Smack, um, you know, have really blossomed in our 90 block area. Um, Tractor started with one location and uh, they've got a third under construction now. Uh, Smack started with one. They now have three within our BIA district. So I think that healthy food uh, and some of them label it as healthy fast food because you're in and out relatively quickly, cafeteria mm-hmm. type style. Uh, so I think that's where we'll see a lot of growth uh, within our 90 block area. Thank you for your projections. I'm looking forward to checking in in the new year okay. to see <laughs> to see what pans out and if there are any surprises, just like there were with this first edition of the report. But for now, Charles, thanks so much for joining the show. Really appreciate your insight. 
Okay, thanks, Haley. That's Charles Gautier, president and CEO of the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. It's time now for our weekly tech panel. In studio with me is Linda Faucus, CEO of Glue Technology Society. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me again. And on the phone, Owen Ingram, CTO at Easy Market. Owen, good to have you join us. Hi, Haley. We have a number of topics to get to, but first, I really, really want to talk about Cybertruck. Elon Musk unveiled Tesla's first all-electric pickup truck. If anyone's listening and you haven't seen it, Google it, because it's very difficult to describe. But the launch, and why don't we start here, it didn't go as planned, Linda. This unshatterable glass actually did shatter twice on stage. Does this hurt a company like Tesla? They have such a devout following, but is there a brand issue here with that kind of a flaw in the launch? Well, it certainly hurt Elon Musk's um, personal worth. What was it, 700 and something million dollar crash with a 6% dip in the stock? (laughs) Uh, I don't think this hurts them that much. I think that they will probably come out with a great um, set of videos that'll go viral on how equally strong the glass is and how amazing the Cybertruck is and it can pull in an F-150 up a hill with ease uh, or doing that tug of war video. So so I think that the brand is going to be fine. I think that it's an incredible um, breath of fresh air into this market that uh, only Tesla could pull off this immense, insane redesign of this trapezoid pickup that is a game changer for vehicle design. And I, I mean, we need a game changer, right? We're going to all be sitting in autonomous vehicles soon enough or certainly self-driving cars. And that technology gives us the freedom to create these designs that don't have to be what we've seen for the last 40, 50, 60 years. So I think it's awesome. I think Tesla's stock will rebound. And this is an amazing uh, way for them to get a conversation started in the market. In a 40-year-old market where the F-Series pickup is dominated, they had to do something to shake that up. They can't come in with a kind of sort of like the F-150. I think they needed to come in bold and strong, and they did, and I believe it's going to do well for them. Yeah, I saw Ryan Holmes tweet about it saying uh, he wonders if it was actually uh, if it was actually uh, an accident to break the glass um, because, uh, you know, Elon's such a marketing savant. Um, and so maybe this will end up being a story that, you know, everyone's talking about and, and raise more awareness and stock price for, uh, for him. Yeah. And it certainly worked to go viral, right? We all, we're all talking about it. We've all seen it. Yeah. And you know what it's, he's, what are we talking about here that the, the glass isn't actually bulletproof? Well, that's not new tech, right? There's bulletproof <laughs> glass out there. So certainly that's an easy solve. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, because actually now when I think about it, I, there are people who maybe would have heard the news but didn't bother to go and Google. I think a lot of people Googled just to see that video. And what did Sid Mead said, the designer of the Blade Runner uh, car, said it's a breathtakingly refreshing, something like that. Mm-hmm. So that the original designer that, that this uh, tr- pickup truck is based off of thinks this is a groundbreaking, amazing thing. So you, now you've got people talking about that. So it is certainly shows, like you said, Owen, that uh, Tesla's and Elon is still on their marketing game. They've got pull here into the pickup market, which turns out to be a bigger market than the entire uh, from all the all the other Tesla road models out there bigger than that market combined. So this is a really important place for them to get a foothold into. And and I'm happy to say it can pull a big Airstream. So can you imagine (laughs) the Cybertruck with that little automatic, that little, yeah, pulling an Airstream, landing at a BC campground? 
That's pretty something. <laughs> Hopefully it's not uh, a sunny day, though, because you'd be blinded. That's but, right. Uh, Everyone around you would be oh, blinded. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's a good point. Well, I know this really, it does a good job of countering the narrative that electric cars are weak, which I think has been challenged before. But this idea that you can't really create a, a supercar, well, Tesla challenged that you can get speed with an electric vehicle. And now they're showing you can get strength and drive and power with an electric vehicle. But I struggle a little bit to picture someone who would buy an F-150 purchasing a car that looks so different. It might be stronger, but it looks so different. Where's the market for this particular vehicle? I, I yeah, think that's it, a good, okay. you go, Owen. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. It was a good point. Uh, just like I always think back to the Hummer when it came out. It was so obtuse. And, uh, you know, it, it actually had a really great run considering it was a big gas guzzler. Um, and so maybe it won't be too far off. But I agree that it's going to be a stretch for a lot of the a lot of these people who are uh, regular working people who actually need a truck to haul things around. You know, it's definitely a bit ostentatious and uh, maybe beyond that, they're not going to fit in with their other friends with their regular trucks. So it would be a bit of a stretch for them to invest in this. And I can see the millennials and the under 40s who are keen outdoor adventurers and people who just drive pickups because they like the look of them going for this. Yeah. It's also an interesting statement for a company to use it as their corporate pickup line. That would really Mm. cause a stir. So I can see, again, I don't think... Tesla's not trying to dominate the pickup market, but this is their foothold in. And it'll be really fascinating to see what type of drivers go here. It's an electric vehicle, too. So we 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 can lose that, oh, it's a gas guzzler sort of angst we had with the Hummers or the big pickups now. And so you can drive a pickup that is totally different than anything else on the road. Big vehicle, does a lot, has pulling power, and really make a glaring statement to the world around you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm I, from the Okanagan originally, and I mean, getting a truck was a rite of passage. So um, there, we always used to make fun of people who used to buy trucks and never haul anything in it. You know, the thing would be spotless, uh, which isn't the point. Um, so maybe this plays to that audience. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. I worry that there's now an invitation for people to just throw things at these vehicles. You know, those campaigns where you see <laughs> like a, an indestructible object being run over by cars. Yeah. I can just imagine the campaigns of people buying these vehicles and people just throwing things <laughs> throwing at them everywhere. Or passerbys <laughs> throwing things at them. We'll see how well it's yeah, received. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> We'll see. But I think we're a little ways away from actually seeing these on, on 2022, the I guess. Hey? Yeah, a couple years away. Yeah. Our next topic is leaks. And the specific question, are we in the age of never ending leaks? Wired has an article that highlights how a researcher found 1.2 billion records left essentially lying easily accessible on the internet. Now, it didn't have credit cards or passwords or very sensitive information, but it did have phone numbers and social media profiles and other profile content. Uh, Owen, do you agree with this idea that we feel like we're in the age of never-ending leaks? Is this kind of the new normal? Yeah, it seems like the new normal. Um, and so I'm almost desensitized to it at this point. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I have, uh, I've seen the other side of actually using some of these services for data enrichment. A lot of companies will pay um, there, there's these great companies like, uh, maybe not great companies, but there's these uh, very impressive technologies like Clearbit and other companies that will provide an API so that if you're filling some uh, form out, it'll auto-populate uh, just based on your email address. 
Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a bit creepy, but uh, it is actually fairly convenient. Um, so I guess there's two parts to this. One is the convenience factor, and the other part is the danger of people actually cracking into your uh, your Google account or your bank account. And so, um, yeah, that's where it gets dangerous. And uh, that's where I think it, it really comes down to really managing your passwords really well. Um, and so, yeah, there's definitely a big danger in it as well. Yeah. And, and for a few years now, I've been giving Google speeches in our, in our tech talks. Every single tech talk discusses passwords, the importance of unique, mm-hmm. strong passwords on every account, unique passwords, I'll say it a second time, on every <laughs> online account you have or within every app. Um, but what what we're seeing here is, you know, back in the day, so a couple of years ago, 100 million records, 150 million records, those were big numbers. And now we're into the billions. Yeah. And and this is a white hat guy who found this this uh, trove on a on a server. And equally impressive people are out there finding bigger um, uh, troves, like a three billion record uh, trove of data sitting on a server. So this content is out there. It's not being uh, secured properly it's it's easy to to buy now you can go to companies around the world and i could probably do it this afternoon and amass a couple of billion records if i worked at it a little bit and so the data is accessible and the companies buying it are not locking it down even though they have agreements with the um, data enrichment companies that they're required to lock it down they're obviously not but then we also live in a time when this data is bought it's sold in the dark web it's 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 re um, organized, it's rehashed together and sold in another group of data. So the takeaway for everyone is your data is out there. Your email address is out there. Your password's probably been stolen as part of a breach. Uh, you need to understand what it is to lock down your digital life, get a new email address, use a password manager, and go to have I been owned, have I been pwned.com to see if your email address has been stolen. Same website, have I been owned.com slash passwords will tell you if your password's been part of one of these breaches. And this 1.2 yeah. billion record breach that we are discussing is part of that database. So you can check yourself against that mm. specific breach. Yeah, the I actually looked myself up and uh, they had uh, my, uh, my email and some information about me from uh, my fitness pal, which I haven't used in a long time. But um, yeah, I saw that in there. And uh, it's just amazing how easy it is to, uh, to extract the password uh, when it's been stored in the database in pretty much any form, except for the latest and greatest, which is what those password managers use. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it, it pretty much goes without saying that the old passwords that we used to use, especially back in the day when it was, you know, you could just put in uh, four letters or whatever, um, those have all been cracked. So um, it's, yeah, very important, actually. I, I actually recently had an incident where someone was trying to impersonate uh, my wife, actually, to open a bank account. And um, so I think it's going to be more and more common. So we, we all have to be on guard about this. Uh, thankfully, banks are also aware of it. So they, they're pretty... Um, uh, they're pretty nice about it, but yeah, um, your, your yeah, dog's name to be assumed. Sorry, Owen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's Aug- to be assumed that they have access to it now. Yeah, yeah, your dog's name and your address or your birth date, birth year isn't gonna <laughs> does not cut it anymore. And I think it's really important too. People are gonna say, "Well, who cares? It's my email address and it's my name and uh, whatever you know, my phone number." 400, 500 million phone numbers are part of this breach, right? So, so it's important that we 
understand that this is our personal data. It's being aggregated, enriched, used, and sold without our understanding or consent in a lot of cases. And we can't yet appreciate what this data could do in the wrong hands. So we need to care. And you need to lock down your digital life. And it starts with uh, your password security. Yeah, and one of the things that really strikes me about, you know, the question of how we address it is the complexity, right? So you might have a company, I'll use Twitter as an example, they might treat your privacy with a certain degree of respect and keep your passwords safe. But then you think of the number of times where you've had to log into Twitter to access another service or give up your handle or password to enter a contest or something like that and on and on and on. And you just think all the the breadcrumbs, so to speak, that are left all over the web as we engage on a daily basis, however many times a day from multiple devices with online services. It's kind of mind boggling. And Linda, is it clear how we even begin to start addressing this beside the individual really stepping up to ensure that they're safe? Right now, it's going to take the individual till we get till we figure this out on a systemic level, it's going to take us and it means you you probably shouldn't be living your digital life with one email address, you need at least three or four, Hmm. certainly one dedicated to all that junk stuff we sign up for online. So that when that email address is stolen, you can easily migrate it out of your life and bring in a new one. That's important. And we also have to take responsibility for how we are um, foiling these credential stuffing moments. And that means you need a password manager. It's just not enough to to say, well, I have my system for creating my password and my passwords are strong enough. It's like they're not strong enough. If you can remember it, it's not a strong password. So just get a password manager, uh, get the password manager to help you create unique passwords everywhere and you're good to go. And those two steps will give you a lot of security and control over your digital life until such time as the infrastructure, the services, companies that we're working with online take their steps to protect us. Right. And, and that's not going to happen for some time. So it's, it's all up to us at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the systemic piece is slowly happening. Um, it's kind of like when we uh, as you know, civilization started to build uh, structures, some, uh, you know, we'd be building towers or whatnot. And then eventually we got into codes, you know, we'd have rules based on um, how, how to build things. Uh, it has to be up to code. Um, so there are some compliance pieces around the world. Uh, there's one called PCI compliance, which helps with credit cards. So if anyone's taking your credit card, they actually have to abide by um, a standard that's that's pretty rigid. Um, and so we just need to see more and more of that. Um, eventually, we're going to get to the point where, uh, you know, there's some sort of mandated code uh, that, you know, your pa- the, the user's passwords are stored in a very secure way. Uh, but until we get there, it's a pretty long way off because, you know, pretty much anyone and their cousin can build a website and ask for a password and people will trust it. Um, so we're, we're a long ways off. Yeah. When you look at these companies who are being breached, these are companies we deeply trust. Adobe, Equifax, uh, MyFitnessPal. We certainly would have guessed. I would have guessed they would have better protection mm-hmm. than they did. And when you look at the list of companies, it's it's we can't trust that these companies are even themselves building uh, secure uh, walls around our data. So I think we have to live in a time where we expect our data to be stolen and we have systems in place personally that can mitigate that damage. Well, it also, it often comes yeah. back down to that individual level in the, too within these companies, okay. right? Yeah, Owen, go ahead. 
Oh, yeah, just in the defense of the technology, um, I was just thinking about the incident with uh, Amazon Web Services when there was uh, um, an engineer that wanted to restart one of the servers, and just by a typo, reset all of their servers and basically took down the internet for a few hours. And, you, you know, it's, 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 there's these human errors that we all make mistakes, and, and sometimes... Um, uh, sometimes it's an intern or a junior or something like that. Most of these hacks seem to be when it's um, it's actually a data storage on a, a file system that accidentally just has public access instead of private. Um, that that seems to be a, a repeating thing. Um, so it, it is fairly easy to make these mistakes, but I agree that it shouldn't happen. Um, but until we have some sort of rigid code in place, uh, yeah, it's just always going to happen. Well, on the topic of having a code in place, that leads us really nicely into our final topic today, and that's a contract of the web. Tim Berners-Lee, creator of the World Wide Web and co-founder of the World Wide Web Foundation, has an op-ed out recently in the New York Times that asks and answers how we can fix the internet. Now, this idea has been in the works for a number of years. Berners-Lee has been quite vocal about this idea of how we better regulate the internet. And he's come up with this contract, which is kind of a, a voluntary measure you can sign up to and abide by rules about how to govern and collaborate and try and solve this. Uh, Linda, first impressions on this idea and whether it can actually meaningfully change the way the internet is and how it evolves. I think it's an important and impressive idea. The contract for the web is something we should all at least read. Glue Technology Society has signed up to it, and I think all companies uh, um, should do that. And I look forward to a time when Canada is one of the national signatories to it. Uh, we need to start having a conversation about what this digital world is going to look like. How are we going to police it? How are we going to control it? Because we are at a tipping point into this amazing possibilities of the web or this dystopian, creepy future where everybody's driving cyber truck <laughs> vehicles. <laughs> that, that wouldn't look good to me. So, so we, need, we need to have a conversation. We need framework in place. And Tim Berners-Lee, Sir Tim has done and his team have done an excellent uh, job at that. And how perfect to come from the father of the web, right, to, mm -hmm. to spearhead this mission. So this is really, really important work. And we all need to pay attention to it because we all need our online world to be safe and secure and fostering creativity. And it's a place we're going to inhabit a lot more, right, than as we age, certainly. So we need to, uh, to work hard to make this part of our infrastructure piece for all companies and people. Mm-hmm. Oh, and what are your initial impressions? Yeah, I love Tim. Uh, you know, he's obviously a genius. Uh, but uh, I, it struck me as very naive uh, when I was reading through it. Um, I definitely think for governments and people to read it is a great, great one. But um, there needs to be teeth in this thing where there's um, it, it, where it speaks the language of corporations, which is which is money. Um, you know the the principles. Uh, it's not really a contract, so it's just an endorsement of principles. Um, it's kind of like what we have with uh, climate change, where we had the Kyoto Accord and Paris Accord, and there wasn't that much of a, you know, it, it didn't hit them hard if they actually uh, fell behind on the carbon emissions. Um, and so th I kind of feel like it's the same thing. Um, if there was, if there was, uh, you know, actually uh, uh, some sort of stick on this thing, then I, I think it would make a lot more sense uh, where companies that agree to it would have a financial disincentive to, uh, you know, to do what they've been doing. Um, 
Yeah, that's that's how it struck me. I, I, I like the idea of it. It just needs to have another area where uh, by signing on, they they actually have some sort of fees, uh, which would have to come through the government. Um, and so that's the only thing that I didn't like about it was just uh, it didn't speak the language of corporations because they are going to and, and are legally mandated to, um, you know, increase the value for the shareholders. So if it comes to uh, going against a principle or increasing their bottom line, they, you know, they have to choose their bottom line. So yeah, and I think the government. Yeah. Yeah, I think that we need to have uh, nations coming on board and deciding on regulation and legislation and perhaps using this as their in, their launching off point to what that's going to look like. We've got France and Germany on board, which is great, and maybe we'll see them, as usual, moving towards a regulation legislation piece that, that begins to bring some of these reasonable principles into our daily online world. But we, we need, uh, you're right, if we don't have any, any uh, disincentive, there is no own there is only incentive to make money so unless we give them a big disincentive that is not going to stop anytime soon you know he doesn't want clickbait yeah. etc and obviously that's not going anywhere unless somebody gives you a big rap with a stick to stop doing it yeah and that plays to what we've been talking about um obviously tim was listening to our podcast previously because this is exactly <laughs> in line with what we've been chatting about um it's just missing the piece here where it has a, a big um a uh, big disincentive that can come in the form of a uh, fee based on, uh, you know, a breach of data or if they are uh, not abiding by one of the principles. Uh, it could come by a tax, like a luxury tax. So if they are doing, for example, political campaigns, then it's heavily, uh, you know, uh, skimmed. And then the other ones would be um, some sort of, uh, you know, class action lawsuit like we do for um, uh, false advertising, right? Like it, it opens up to litigation uh, because of the law. So we just need those factors. We've done this before to control corporations. I don't know why the conversation isn't going that direction. We have all these billionaires talking about, you know, if if they have a choice between paying more tax and not paying more tax, they're just not going to pay more tax. So it's up to the government to have a stick and to get everyone in, in line uh, to the rules so that it's fair. And I don't understand why it needs to even come to this, where it's some sort of uh, principles from a third party. It should come from the government and they should have a big stick and we should be making money off the situation. Um, and then everyone's, you know, everyone's game to play ball. No one wants to do anything illegal. We just have to make it illegal uh, when there are these breaches. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges too, with something like the web that operates outside of our borders to a large extent, is what government regulates it, right? Just like with the tax example, you see one country crack down and a company easily flips over to another one. So it's interesting. You can see the the desire and the, the thinking behind making this a sort of international initiative. But I don't even know, even when you look at countries have different definitions for di the digital world and digital things. It's, it seems like a really big challenge to try and place an enforcement mechanism around it. I'm so curious to see how it evolves. But we've regulated more complicated industries, healthcare, for instance, the automotive industry. We, we've done this in really complicated spaces, and uh, so we can do it again. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's absolutely possible. It just takes the desire piece. Who wants to make it happen? That's a good question. Yeah. I'm curious, too. I want to get both of your it, feedback. Oh, okay. go ahead, Owen. Oh, I was just thinking, um, I think that if we focus on the money, which is the, um, the consumer, for example, a Canadian consumer, if we're putting on our credit card, even if the service is in uh, Ireland or wherever, 
um, that's where we can angle it uh, legally. Um, and I, I think that's all it needs to come down to is to, to basically uh, the government is uh, setting the rules for their own, uh, for the population. Um, and so they're basically providing that marketplace to the corporations. So that's where we have the power, uh, regardless of how international a company is, to say, you know, if you do a political ad in Canada, you have to pay us, you know, lots of cash or something along those lines. <laughs> Right. I think there's there's a lot of respect for the work of Tim Berners-Lee. I think it's fair to say there is not a lot of respect for how companies like Facebook have handled issues around privacy. Facebook, one of the signatories to this, and you can see again why they would be at the table, just given the sheer number of people on their platform and their influence. But at the same time, Linda, does this take away from the value of this kind of initiative in any way as people are coming to the table trying to discuss what is the web we want, what Facebook wants, probably very, very different from a government, different perhaps from Berners-Lee. Yeah, and it's probably very much a PR exercise for Facebook to sign on because they would look very bad had they not signed on. <laughs> so, right. so sign on, as, as Owen said, there's no teeth to it anyway. So what's the downside? Uh, have your logo on the page, be part of the conversation <laughs> until we start actually bringing some sticks into this conversation. Facebook's happy to sit there. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we are talking about controlling the beast of the internet, the beast of the World Wide Web. And everybody who's participating in that needs to start to have the conversation and agree to the path we're going to let this thing move in. And I think that's what uh, Sir Tim has done here is he's saying, all right, everybody, let's let's just sort of look down this road or that road. And I'm, he's mm. choosing the happy road where life is better. And the internet, the web is better for all people. It makes the planet a better place to live. And and all this, all the big tech companies need to sign on to that conversation at least. And this is just an easy way. And six questions and an agree button, hit submit, and they're signed on. So now we take the conversation to the regulation piece, to the nation piece, to the legislative piece, and see where we can enact change. But it starts with a conversation. Linda, yeah. Owen, and, yeah, uh, Owen, Linda, I hope you're correct that uh, this is the beginning of uh, something that does evolve. Um, and and maybe I'm a bit naive, but I, I think that uh, the genius at Facebook, uh, they are willing, I feel like they're willing to play the game. Um, you know, they're they're very smart. They're going to figure out every angle to maximize their dollars and, and maximize their reach. Um, but I, I feel like, uh, you know, if we just set the, the game rules better, then they would be willing to play within, within them. Yeah, without question, I'm the one who's being naive, I think. <laughs> I think I'm just hoping that this this can make a positive change. I'm crossing my fingers and doing what I can <laughs> to talk about it. And I, I don't, I, I'm not, I am hopeful in my day job, in my night job, I'm thinking, Ikes, if we don't do this, what next? We need Facebook to want to make money, but also to want to enrich the digital world. We need Google to make their money and and enrich the digital world. And that doesn't have to be at odds with each other. Those two don't have to be totally competing forces. Yeah, there is another factor to it uh, that they have behavioral scientists that figure out, you know, the uh, inflection points for how sticky they can make their platform. And we are wired uh, for um, being adrenalized by conflict and friction and so, unfortunately, they they know uh, that you know if they allow um, 
if they allow for sensational articles to be passed around, then they will have more engagement. Um, so, so unfortunately, it, there is a factor just from our human nature against having a peaceful web, and so that's where, yeah, that's where we have to have thoughtful uh, leadership on the on the regulation side. I'm happy to leave it there on a bit of an optimistic note. I feel like we've left so many tech panels on kind of this doom and gloom piece of everything's <laughs> falling apart, everything's being leaked, we have no privacy. This is okay. There might be a path to a It'll safer, be okay. happier web. It will be okay. It will all be okay. <laughs> Owen, Linda, thank you as always for joining the show. Thank you. Thank you. On the line, that's Owen Ingram, CTO of Easy Market, and in studio with me, Linda Faucus, CEO of Glue Technology Society. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. We're also on Spotify and all of our episodes available at BIV.com audio. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>